Welcome to episode 33 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. And so he, he went over time with a number of murders uh, where he'd engaged in this very cold-blooded, uh, really, assassination of people who he needed to eliminate for whatever reason. I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Professor James Ogloff, who is a University Distinguished Professor of Forensic Behavioural Science and the Director of the Centre for Forensic Behavioural Science at Swinburne University of Technology. He is also the Executive Director of Psychological Services and Research at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Mental Health. Professor Ogloff has worked in clinical and forensic psychology in a variety of settings for 35 years. He's published 18 books and more than 300 scholarly articles and book chapters. In 2015, Professor Ogloff was appointed a member of the Order of Australia, recognised for his significant service to education and to the law as a forensic psychologist, academic, researcher and practitioner. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink an online directory listing mental health practitioners like psychologists, counsellors and psychotherapists. You can search for a mental health practitioner for free by applying for filters for things that are important to you, like a particular focus area or experience in a specific treatment type. You can even see a short video of the therapist to decide if this is someone that you would like to connect with. Many health practitioners are booked out for weeks or even months at the moment. All of the clinicians on TalkLink have capacity to see clients straight away. Find your mental health practitioner today at talklink.com.au. Okay, let's dive in. Yeah, well, psychopaths a term that's been around for a long time and, and its meaning has really evolved. Uh, in the contemporary times, we really think about psychopath as somebody who has a very uh, serious form of personality disorder. And by that, I mean, they have characteristics of personality which are unusual and, and they can be quite extreme. Uh, generally speaking, they fall into a few categories. So the first is they have difficulties in uh, interactions with, with people. And so they present in ways sometimes they're more, they try to be charming. They might use a lot of lying, conning, manipulation. They also can be people who have low, low levels of, of mood or affect. So things don't typically bother them very much. Uh, they don't get particularly happy, they don't get particularly sad. And along with that, they typically don't feel things like remorse or, um, you know, they can have difficulty feeling what other people feel. So for example, if you watch the news and something terrible's happened, uh, what they, they won't feel the same emotions most of us will when we see that. And then in addition to those sort of features which we see as personality features, the disorder often manifests in behavioral features as well. And they're they're roughly divided in two categories. The first are uh, general uh, behavioral problems such as they often have a very high need for stimulation. They can be sensation seeking. They can be quite aggressive. Uh, they can be very forceful, uh, both physically and, and psychologically. And then finally, uh, some of them at least end up uh, engaging in criminal activity but most of them would, 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 if it's not crime, most of them would engage in what we would call some rule violation, or they would be, you know, bucking up against authority uh, quite often. Hmm. Okay, well, I'm sure our listeners probably have as many questions as I do right now. But before we go down those rabbit warrants, let's just get a few definitions out of the way. Can you just speak for a moment about the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? 
Yeah, generally, it's a semantic uh, sort of issue. So in the in the history, again, I said it's, psychopathy has a long history. So without going into detail, uh, in mental health, we use different diagnostic classification systems, that is to indicate the particular disorders and their features. And so uh, over time, psychopathy and also what's called antisocial personality disorder, uh, which is a more recent name, they have sort of been used interchangeably for about 40 years. Interestingly, the term sociopathy really uh, emerged following the Second World War. And what happened during the Second World War, of course, is a lot of human atrocity. So there was lots of discussion in psychiatry and psychology post-war about how, how could you explain from a psychological or psychiatric perspective how people who may be everyday people could end up being you know, soldiers committing atrocities. And uh, so beginning really in the early 1950s, this term sociopathy emerged, which was the sense that you could develop these psychopathic features uh, based on your, your exposure to society. But interestingly enough, that, that only lasted for uh, really about, um, about 18 years, 16 to 18 years, and then it went away. And so since really uh, the late 1960s, the term psychopathy has been used mostly but we still see this term sociopathy emerge. So, so that you'll see variable explanations for the difference, but mostly it's semantic. And if there is a difference, sociopathy will generally refer to people who develop these sort of psychopathic features as a result of their environment, uh, you know, and exposure to, to things like trauma and the like, or, or authority, rather than innate characteristics. Right, so is one born and one made? Uh, well, to some extent, that that would be that would be the case. And again, I think you know that the the, the, the uh, that that's very artificial to me because uh, people, for example, if we just go back to the example of war, people can do terrible things without being psychopathic. The vast majority, for example, of of offenders, including violent offenders, are not psychopathic, and many psychopathic people don't offend and don't commit criminal offenses. So that distinction is artificial, but it really comes again from this early explanation of how do you try to understand how people could do terrible things to other people. Jim, how is psychopathy classified in the book for psychology? So the DSM, at least in the US and Australia. Yeah, so that's the di- one of the diagnostic systems that I talked about. So psychopathy itself hasn't been a, a diagnosis for um again, really, really since about uh, 1952. So, uh, and, and there were a range of reasons for that. They were trying to become more uh, behavioral in understanding how, how personality manifests. And also, even, even then, psychopathy was quite pejorative. So uh, it's just like in, at, at the present time, for example, in, in other areas like autism, there would be different words used over time. Sometimes they're, they're taken out. So the DSM with the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, we now have the fifth edition. It refers to antisocial personality disorder uh, and psychopathy overlaps with that, but it's generally understood that psychopathy would be a narrower construct and would occur less frequently and be more generally more serious. Okay, all right. You've obviously had a very long career studying antisocial behavior and a lot of that has been in a criminal context. So I'm curious to what drew you 
to studying psychopaths and what you've taken from it on a personal level? Interesting question. Uh, mine, my part, mine was an evolution like everyone. And I, I certainly didn't start out life wanting to be a, a forensic psychologist, but I always was interested, you know, from a very young age in law. Initially, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then uh, I became interested in psychology only, only when I started university. So my, in my generation, psychology didn't have much profile. You didn't see, there weren't psychologists on TV, it's things like that. Certainly there weren't forensic psychologists. So uh, I took psychology as an undergrad and then I got interested in it. And, and I was able to uh, very quickly work with a, a, a child psychologist, in fact, who uh, eventually got me to work at a children's hospital with kids who were abused. And so I began you know, working with kids who were abused. And then in relatively short order, I started to work with uh, teenagers who committed offenses and were detained in a, in a youth facility. And I started to draw comparisons. And what I, what I found, and, and you know, what is a fact, is that a large majority of these young people who were uh, in this facility had very difficult backgrounds. And so I began interested, became interested in how is it that people develop, you know, characteristics that, that enable them to offend. Uh, then I ended up working, uh, going off and working with adult offenders in a maximum security prison. And that's where my interest really developed. And my initial belief was because of my history, I didn't really believe in something like psychopathy. So I thought that it could be explained by adverse reactions to terrible backgrounds. Because I had seen abused children react differently to the experiences. Some of them, for example, became clingy and craved uh, positive human interaction and uh, any sort of contact, even if it was abuse. Others just became distant and cold and obstinate and uh, sometimes anti-authoritative and adversarial. So I, I developed sort of a pet theory and others had this theory at the time, which is that psychopathy was somehow uh, the reaction to this terrible environment. And it was a process by which people's emotions shut down. So I, I began to do research with uh, people and, and measure. I mean, in those days I was interested in psychophysiology. So psychophysiology is the measure of um, our parasympathetic system. So for example, heart rate, blood pressure, skin conductance, uh, muscle tension. Uh, and I would look at how people who are psychopathic differed from others because my, my theory was that somehow people could overcome this sort of psychopathy. But to make a very, very long story short, I, I found out very quickly that wasn't the case, that there were a small number of people who were, for whatever reason, you know, very different from others. And there was no, no explanation in the way that I had, in an amateur way, sort of uh, began to, to understand things. Someone once told me that if someone is a, is a true psychopath, then you can try and scare them or um, give them a big fright and they don't have the normal physiological responses, the increase in heart rate, the perspiration uh, that a normal person would. Is that true? In fact, that's some of my early work. And you know, I won't go into detail because it's complex, but I was interested in exactly that. So there's, there's a phenomenon which we call anti anticipatory arousal. So obviously we've evolved and we've evolved you know, um, to survive in sometimes difficult environments. So, so what happens is when we're in a situation where we expect something adverse to happen, our body prepares psychophysiologically. So for example, if you are driving your car and you see there's a car coming straight for you and you can't do anything to stop uh, that car, 
then your body will begin to react. So your heart rate will increase, your blood pressure will increase, skin conductance uh, will, you're, you're, so you'll, you'll actually begin to perspire and uh, you'll have this uh, surge, this uh, parasympathetic system uh, surge. Uh, so there were some people that had done this research before me, but what I was interested in, you know, could we really eliminate this response? And so what I did in a very simple way is I just designed a series of experiments. And uh, what I did is I first uh, introduced people to an adverse stimuli. So in, in my case, it was a very, very loud tone. So they're wearing headphones, much like you're wearing. They'd come into a laboratory. And what we would do is we would, we would play an incredibly loud sound. It would be a, about 120 decibels at about 1,000 megahertz. So a very loud piercing sound, but not loud enough to do damage. But it would cause a start. And sometimes people would pull the headphone off. So they would come in, they would hear that. And then essentially what would happen is we'd have a paradigm where there would be a countdown before they would hear that tone. So we'd say, okay, you've heard the tone. Now, in the after countdown from 10 down to zero, you're going to hear the tone. And what I would do the whole while, of course, is measure their physiological arousal. And what you'd find is uh, uniformly, uh, particularly before they first heard the tone, uh, if they didn't know what was coming, you'd see this increase in heart rate, skin conductance. And it's very interesting that it could happen very rapidly. So from a countdown to 10 to zero with three second intervals, you could see a pretty dramatic increase just because they, they realize they're going to be um, given this very adverse stimuli. So to make a long story short, what we then did is we developed a way that they could stop that tone uh, by pressing a button. So at the end of the countdown at one but before zero, if they hit this button, which said stop, the tone would stop. So what was very interesting is um, people who are psychopathic, they had an increase in, in the uh, heart rate no matter what, uh, but the no, no increase in skin conductance. And the skin conductance, generally speaking, we think of measuring anxiety, whereas the heart rate is measuring our preparedness for this adverse stimuli. So under the normal condition where they're, they're gonna hear the tone and they can't do anything about it, they would, the psychopaths and non-psychopaths would have similar heart rate changes, but as you pointed out, the psychopaths wouldn't have this anxiety uh, arousal. But interestingly enough, as soon as we introduce the ability to stop the this uh, tone, people who are not psychopathic still had the same increase. And it was because now they're anxious about hitting the tone between one second and zero without, uh, and stopping it. So they're still anxious about that and the heart rate's preparing them. As soon as we introduced that task for the psychopath though, there was no increase in heart rate, no increase in anxiety. And so what this taught us is that people who are psychopathic really had developed a capacity over time to deal with adverse events in a way that they're not physiologically aroused. So if we bring that to a sort of a real world example, what this means, for example, is if, if uh, say somebody is um, going into a bottle shop with an intent say to rob the place, so if uh, the owner says no, or they have a weapon or they pick up their phone or something, uh, the individual who's not psychopathic will already be very anxious going in, confronting the person. And then when the person reacts in a way they didn't anticipate, they will have you know, a bit of a panic. And generally speaking for most of us, when we're under those circumstances, we have a lot of trouble thinking. We become so uh, upset you know, and aroused that our heads almost fill with blood. We can't think, you know, we, we've all had those experiences. 
again, in car accidents and, and the like. The person who's psychopathic though, because they don't have that physiological arousal, the heart rate will go up. And what that'll do is that will provide them with the, the adrenaline that they need to begin to actually um, act in a, in a more decisive way, but they do, do not become anxious. And so it actually allows them to have a degree of being much more thoughtful and level-headed so they can anticipate and act in a way that most of us would struggle with because we'd be overcome with our, our emotions and our anxiety. Hmm. That's so interesting. So does that mean in some careers, being a psychopath might actually be an advantage to you? I don't know. I'm just imagining like a um, paramedic where you need to be cool, calm and collected and you can't be perturbed by maybe some fairly gory, grisly things. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. And what's interesting, and even even in some of the early work, it was military. You know, the sense was, would it be uh, would, would, would it be good to be psychopathic? But what you find is, though, people who are psychopathic. They don't typically have allegiance. They don't typically follow instruction very well. So it, so those features could serve you well, but you need to be, you know, for example, a paramedic. You obviously need to be able to cope with very difficult circumstances. But at the same time, you want to have a, a high degree of moral, uh, you know, moral consciousness. You want to have a, you want to be compassionate and so on and so forth. So it's quite interesting because the more recent research that's been done, you know, just really moving it to how does this apply to sort of serious crime is uh, some investigators uh, back in Canada uh, where I worked ended up doing some fascinating work with people who committed murder, homicide offenders. And what they did is they looked at homicide offenders and they looked at psychopathic versus non-psychopathic. And then they looked at how planned their crimes were versus spontaneous. And what they basically found is that for the people who were uh, psychopathic, their crimes were typically much more cold-blooded, callous, planned. Uh, whereas the person who's not psychopathic would have a much more spontaneous, reactive sort of crime. So for example, if you're in a, in a, in a pub and you get into a fight with somebody, the psychopath would be better able to control their arousal and not cause more extreme damage than they needed to just to subdue the person. Whereas the person who's not psychopathic, because of what I talked about earlier, may actually literally explode and engage in behavior that they really can't control. Hmm. I wonder if that's maybe why the cold-blooded, calculated murders that psychopaths sometimes commit um, you know, engages the curiosity and the fascination and the fear of people so much. Do you have any thoughts on that? And I guess you've probably encountered psychopaths who have killed, right? Um, so what were your personal observations on that? Yeah. Yeah. Again, in my work over a long time, it's coming up to 40 years. I, I've worked with lots of people who are psychopathic and lots and lots of offenders and lots of people who committed murder. And of course, there's such a high degree of heterogeneity or variance across them. But generally speaking, the people who are more psychopathic, um, contrary to sort of what popular myth is, they're less likely to explode and to be, be um, somebody who's going to be unpredictable. They're much more likely to be, um, you know, what we, we, we talk about as being instrumental. That is, they'll engage in particular behavior for a purpose. And so that's typically how we can identify their crimes, is they're more, much more likely to be instrumental. And of course, they can be motivated by a range of factors like other people who commit serious crimes like murder. It could be money, it could be sex, uh, it could be anger, uh, but they're the product of their crime 
will often be quite different. How they carry it out will be quite different. Is there a particular case study that you can think about that you can talk about publicly that you know really left a mark on you? You know, encountering someone like that. Yeah, I mean, there there are a range of people, and again, like I said, it's it's difficult to categorize people. But um, you know, if I could speak without identifying case, what I can give a couple of examples. I mean, one one that that comes to mind, for example, was somebody who um, was a very psychopathic man who had been able to almost uh, develop a counter identity. That is, he was somebody who was not very well educated. Uh, but he had a friend, for example, who was a doctor, and they became they were friends for for many years. And so he would go, for example, to the hospital and visit him, and he would um, end up uh, for over a period of time pretending he was a doctor. And so he took on this sort of uh, so he even went to the point where he we went to the hospital, for example, he would go with his friend to the doctor's lounge, and then on his own once he would go and he would just take a a, a white doctor's gown. And then he would um, take some ID, flip it around, and he would be able to walk around the hospital. And he just got a lot of pleasure from just being able to be treated like a doctor in a hospital. And then he carried that on over different parts of his life and was able to manipulate a lot of people financially, sexually, and otherwise. So that's an example. Not He didn't commit murder, but it's an example of sort of someone who's motivated uh, really for his power and control and, and manipulating people. Uh, the people who who commit homicide, again, again, contrary mm-hmm. to what the myth is, like for example, Silence of the Lambs and those sorts of things, the person would have to have uh, a separate motivation to commit homicide. So, the psychopath isn't doesn't have any innate desire to kill people or to hurt people. They use that as a means to get what they want. So the the people who who I know who are psychopathic who've committed murder. You know, examples that come to mind, somebody I'd worked with who'd, who'd killed a number of people over time, started out as a sort of petty criminal, and he, his first victims were, in fact, accomplices in crime. And he also killed um, a person during a robbery because he couldn't subdue the, the, this was a clerk. And so he ended up killing them. And each, each of these killings was done just for a purpose, you know, to he killed the clerk, to subdue the clerk rather than taking off or, and he was afraid he could be identified. So, so he had no difficulty eliminating this person. And then similarly, eliminating uh, people who were accomplices who he thought could identify him. And so he, he went over time with a number of murders uh, where he'd engaged in this very cold-blooded, uh, really assassination of people who he needed to eliminate for whatever reason. And so that's sort of a classic example where he wasn't driven by you know, anger, it wasn't anything like that. It was really sort of methodical. And I guess that's that cold-blooded, callous uh, behavior, whether or not it eventuates in murder, is what people, I think, find, you know, frightening and, and really very difficult to understand. And when you spoke to this individual, did they have any remorse? No, no remorse. And in fact, you know, uh, they under, at an, uh, this is an interesting thing. But again, just without having too much of a tangent, I mentioned early on that people who are psychopathic don't have, typically don't have empathy, they don't have remorse, they can be quite callous. So for most of us, it's impossible to understand what's that like, because most of us are very empathic. And, the, and this is, in fact, how we've evolved as a, as a species. 
that get along well. Like I live in Melbourne, you know, several million people and thankfully very, very safe city. And so people live generally in harmony. And part of the reason is because we feel bad when we do things, you know. So um, I see people in my suburb, elderly people who still use cash, you know, and I don't I, I don't ever think I'll steal their money because I'd like to get the money, you know. So we, we're, we're raised with empathy and sympathy and so forth. The person who is psychopathic doesn't have that uh, that innate sense of connectedness with others. But what's interesting is because they have a brain, like they're smart like everybody else, they realize that they are different, but they can't really understand how different. So, so someone once said to me early in my career, uh, and it, I, I've now read it elsewhere, is that uh, being a, understanding a psychopath is like understanding someone who's colorblind. So someone who's colorblind knows there are colors, they know that people see colors, they, they understand there are colors, and they might see some variation of, of color, but they don't really see color. And it's the same thing I've experienced with people who are psychopathic, that is, they know that there are a host of emotions that people have, uh, love, hate, so on and so forth, but they just don't have them. And so they understand in an intellectual level that there are these things exist, but they don't sense them emotionally like we do. So it's quite fascinating. And, you know, some of the people I've dealt with, you know, can be quite intelligent and can really introspect quite well on this, uh, but often realize that they don't have that. Uh, they just, for whatever reason, don't have it. And, and it's an interesting thing because we usually see psychopathy as a detriment to society for the reasons we've talked about. But I, I, I agree with that. But at the same time, for the individual who's psychopathic, they don't experience the highs of life that we do. So, you know, and I do a lot of training and teaching and speaking, and I'll ask a group of people, you know, what are the most significant events that have, have happened in your life? And invariably, if people have children, they'll talk about the birth of my child. They'll talk about getting married, falling in love, you know, the feeling of, be, of being in love. Uh, the person who's psychopathic doesn't have that. So they just don't understand to the depth that, that most of us would, what those feelings are like. So they don't enjoy those experiences, but at the same time, they're not as affected by it. Because of course, our great sorrow comes from losing someone we love. So they, they won't feel that. So again, someone who is a psychopathic offender I worked with, um, he was, uh, you know, I was trying to, in a simple way again, a long time ago, try to get him to become more emotional or understand emotion more. And so I tried in a, in a session to get him to remember the worst thing that ever happened to him in his life. You know, this is a man who would have been in his thirties and he said something like, well, nothing bad's ever really happened to me. And so I said, well, what, what about your mother? You told me your mother died. Oh yeah, that's right, my mother died. Well, what was that like? How did she die? She had cancer. That must've been tough. Oh yeah, it was terrible. And so uh, he could describe physically what was happening to his mother and his observations, but not emotionally. And so, uh, I tried to get him to understand, well, how did you feel when you were visiting her? And he didn't have that depth of emotion, you know, where you're really feeling um, this connectedness with someone where you're almost feeling the, the pain that they're in. So they don't get the pleasure from the highs of life, but they don't, they don't also get the pain from the lows of life. That's so interesting. And you're... You know, there's an element of me that's fascinated by psychopaths, but um, 
the way you describe it now really moves a deep sense of empathy for them. And I'm thinking back to a comment you made earlier about working with really abused children. Um, and perhaps this ties together then. Um, can you speak a little bit about what makes a psychopath? How do you end up? Are you born or is it a sequence of terrible events? Yeah, unfortunately, there's no real answer to that question. And there's been obviously lots and lots of research. And so um, the, what we know, you know, cutting to the chase is that people who are psychopathic, there is some genetic predisposition, but it's pretty limited. And, and all personality characteristics, incidentally, have a genetic, some genetic predisposition. So there, in, in genetics, there's a concept of heritability, where we, we have uh, in our DNA specific characteristics uh, for example, if, if you're taller than average, shorter than average, heavier than average, lighter than average, but you're the, but as the environment influences us, how these characteristics actually um, develop uh, are influenced by not just the DNA, but also by the environment. So as best we can tell, personality features are accounted for about 30% uh, by, by sort of genetics. So there is a genetic component there's also uh, a component of environment. And certainly we do see people develop some of the features I talk about in adverse environments. Uh, but again, you wouldn't, you know, there's not a direct relationship between, you know, say being abused and being a psychopath. You really need this constellation of characteristics to come together. So you need to have some genetic predisposition, some um, environmental um, experiences and it doesn't have to be abuse. So I've, I've dealt with plenty of people who are psychopathic from very good backgrounds, from, from very good families uh, who, who uh, if anything, say their parents were too good, too good to them. Uh, so it's really not one particular trajectory or pathway. It's a range of these features coming together. In, in more recent times, and by that, I mean probably the last 20 to 30 years, we've been able to look at uh, obviously the both brain function and brain structure. And, uh, and incidentally, DNA, going back to DNA. So again, I'm old enough that I've, I've worked long before, you know, DNA was identified in terms of the actual uh, genetic sequencing. And so people did believe there would be genetic, a gene, that simply hasn't happened. And similarly, people thought there would be structural brain differences. That is, if you looked at the brains of psychopaths, they would, they would be different in terms of structure. And by structure, I mean, they would have parts of the brain would be more or less, um, you know, larger, smaller, whatever. Uh, uh, and now functioning, we are able to look at the functioning brain through MRI scans and the like. And what we see is that people who are psychopathic don't have structural brain differences. They don't have genetic, you know, a, a particular gene. But what you do get are functional, some functional brain differences. And, and again, they, they're not explained by, uh, you know, it's impossible to know what came first. So what will happen is somebody who is psychopathic, again, if you show them on a computer, uh, say you project, you know, for a second uh, images and say some of the images are neutral, like a door or a window, something that wouldn't evoke any emotional arousal. And then you show them an emotionally arousing picture, like, a, you know, a picture of a young, a young child, maybe crying or a child in a war-torn, you know, uh, environment crying. So they'll, they'll see these pictures in a sequence of one second. And again, we're, we're looking at psychophysiology. They won't have the arousal. So, um, so when you look at the brain, the components of the brain that are activating are, are different. So for, for most people, if you see a picture, obviously you're, 
your occipital lobe, the area of the brain that uh, allows you to see vision, that's activated. Uh, so their 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 vision's activated, but the parts of the brain that are linked to emotion, emotional arousal, they're not they're not activated to the extent that they would be for other people. So again, we see the functional brain differences, but not structural differences. And there's there's lots of discussion about you know what might cause that. Is it learned? Is it innate? Uh, and we're still not at a point where we could definitively say. There's a incredible movie about a free solo rock climber that um, climbs Al Capitan uh, called Free Solo. And in this documentary, they put the rock climber in an fMRI machine and they find out that he's got underdeveloped parts of his brain, which means he just doesn't feel the anxiety when he's up on a ledge, um, you know, fractions of a millimeter away from death. Um, does that sort of strike to what you're, you're talking about? Exactly Would that qualify? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, you know, that, and I don't know, I hadn't seen, I know about that, but I hadn't seen that and I wouldn't have a sense of him. But, you know, again, that's exactly what we find is that the, um, the person who's psychopathic and how it translates, it's, it's risk-taking behavior and pretty reckless uh, and they typically are pretty fearless. And then this is how uh, really in the 1940s, uh, some of these characteristics were identified. So in, in the 30s and 40s in psychology in particular, a lot of research was being done in how humans learn. And uh, we learn by a range of different things, including reinforcement. And, and they basically found a small group of people who were psychopathic, who didn't learn in a normal sort of way. And it's because we don't get those, those sort of cues. So, so that's exactly right. So some of those features, again, recklessness, uh, risk-taking, uh, that's where some of this, uh, you know, that's some of the features of psychopathy. And so I should say that psychopathy uh, is a range of characteristics, each of, each of which follows on a dimension. And uh, the fact is that with those characteristics, uh, th there are very few people who would be truly psychopathic. So, you know, in, even among offenders. So in the early work, looking at people who were being measured uh, in a measure of psychopathy, there were 1,200 people. And I think there were three or four who were, who, who were absolute psychopaths. You know, so in terms of the percent of people, uh, if you took a, a maximum security prison, you'd find probably 15 to 20% of people would be quite psychopathic, uh, but very few would have all these characteristics. So that's a bit of a risk. When we talk about features of psychopathy, Sometimes you get a sense you have to have every single thing to be psychopathic. Well, of course you don't. So we measure this in terms of this dimension. And uh, so someone could have features like you said, they could be fearless, but they might still be empathic and, uh, and have not have those personality features. So the psychopath is the one who has these, these host of characteristics which fall in that dimension of, of being consistent with psychopathy. It's an interesting concept to hear you talk about it living on a spectrum um, because it, it does strike the image in, in my mind and, and I'm sure many listeners as well of imagining people that you might know or maybe even yourself and you think, gosh, am I on that spectrum or where would I sit? I guess what are your reflections on functional psychopaths or people who are on that spectrum who may feel like, yeah, I don't have the highs and lows emotionally that I see around me. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that you know that you've hit hit on a really important point, Ron. Because what you find is the, um, you know, it's one of the problems. In fact, you know, for many many years I taught psychopathology, which is 
mental mental illness. And the first thing you have to do is you have to lecture that you will you will feel that you have some of these or your friends do. And of course, when someone doesn't have a, a depth of knowledge, it's easy to think that. So, you know, to give you an example with psychopathy again. So in terms of the population, like I mentioned in a prison population, you might get 15 to 20 percent. And that would be a maximum security prison, you know, with hardened criminals. But in the general population, the estimates are far less than 1%. So, you know, uh, it would be something like um, one out of every 200 people would have uh, these features of, of psychopathy. So, so that's exactly right. So you will get people, and, and one of the areas of, you know, modern interest is the so-called white-collar psychopath. And, and there's a degree, of, um, a degree of debate about that because there's no question that people in different walks of life, other than being a criminal, can have psychopathic features. But whether that's psychopathy, whether it's something else, you know, we don't really know. So there are a range of different features that have been used, including being narcissistic, you know, or, or innately self-focused, uh, that might help explain some of these things. Uh, and uh, again, someone who's particularly driven there and, and sort of narcissistic or selfish, they may be able to put their needs first at the expense of other people, even people they love. So, so uh, you know, there is a body of work looking at offending and non-offending and whether among the non-offenders, you know, what does psychopathy look like? And, and in some of my own research, we've looked at this. So for example, I have looked with a PhD student at uh, people who commit serious fraud offenses. So uh, in this person's PhD, he studied um, people who committed very serious fraud offenses, so over $100,000. And in the sample, there were people who stolen from 100,000 up to about 22 million. And he, he conducted a range of, of um, you know, assessments with them. And we, we did, at the beginning, measure psychopathy and, and there's a business psychopathy measure. And interesting, none of them were psychopathic. They, they were motivated by a range of other things. So uh, what we found is that they, over time, they, for example, they're, they're often employees uh, and they're taking money from people they, they, they know, sometimes families that have been good to them and so forth. And basically what happens is over time, their sort of selfishness and all the normal impediments to stealing begin to break down. So they, they begin to think things like, I work harder than this family, yet they make all the money. You know, and so they, they have these, um, these uh, cognitive or, or thoughts that, over time allow them to engage in bad behavior. But there wasn't an innate sort of psychopathy. Having said that, there, I'm sure there would be people who commit fraud who are psychopathic, but we, we just, it wasn't anywhere near as common as we thought it might be. Okay, so of the general population, we're talking about under 1%, about, you said one in 200? Yeah, the research shows it would be less than 1%. Uh, you know, there's been, people have attempted to do that epidemiological work. So that's right, it's very rare. What about the split between men and women? Do we know anything about the representation there? Yeah, generally speaking, you know, first of all, I think it's important to say there are there are female psychopaths, and that's something that's very difficult for society to deal with, including law. I've been involved in in horrible cases sometimes with female psychopaths, and the um, the criminal justice system, particularly in the past, would struggle to understand that women there could be women who could be like that. And so we know that if we, we look at the proportion of women and men, there are fewer women proportionally than men who would have psychopathic features. And again, I think that's explained by 
by evolution and, and learning because women are from, from a young age and certainly traditionally uh, the carers. And so it would be very difficult for us to imagine uh, women who have these features, you know, let alone men. And that's why I think that we do as a society struggle when there are women who engage in, in such bad behavior because you just couldn't imagine a woman doing that. Like I had a case in the last couple of years of a woman who, who had sexually abused a number of her own children in a pretty callous way. And, you know, people were very surprised by this and, and, uh, and uh, but it, it's rare, but it does happen. So, and again, so this cut to the chase, some women are psychopathic, fewer than men, but, but it certainly does exist. You mentioned um, an element of intelligence before, um, and I imagine you need a certain amount of intelligence to be able to manipulate to the extent required and to process complex scenarios, to, to weave in what you need to weave in. Does science tell us anything about the IQ as a whole for psychopaths? Yeah. So again, it's interesting because we use different terms like successful psychopath or not. And so, so early on, you know, and there was a very influential um, psychiatrist from the United States called Cleckley, uh, Hervey Cleckley, uh, who, who wrote a, a very famous book called The Mask of Sanity in, in 1941, I think. And he, he at the time was a, was a psychiatrist who also was a good writer. And he also wrote another uh, famous book um, called The Two Faces of Eve, which was about split personality and it became, became a movie. So, so he wrote this book, The Mask of Sanity. And uh, he actually uh, assumed that, that psychopaths would be more than average intelligence. But what we now know over time is there isn't a correlation between psychopathy and intelligence. So, you know, that is, that, that means that you don't have people who are psychopathic having higher levels of, of uh, intelligence or lower, but how, they, how they're able to do things like you say, manipulate or con people will be dependent on that. So the most sort of successful psychopath would be somebody who would have a, a capacity to con, manipulate and, and do people, you know, into believing things that, that weren't the case. And, uh, but generally speaking, we'll see people who are psychopathic, who have lower levels of intelligence, and some who have higher levels of intelligence. There's no hard and fast rule. Yeah, interesting. Someone, um, I, I was listening to a discourse the other day where someone was talking about PTSD and the stresses that a soldier may endure when they go out to battle. You know, they may be a sweet, you know, responsible person at home loves their mother, loves their family, and then on the battlefield, they do things that doesn't reconcile with that sweet country boy. And when they go home, they really struggle reconciling the two and they end up in a really dark space um, and they experience heavy PTSD. Um, and the, the discourse was about introducing the concept of their shadow and trying to reconcile the fact that all of us have this darkness, this, this to use Jung's word, the shadow. And once you reconcile that we all have the shadow, and if you control it and contain it, it, it serves you, but it's a part of you. And unless you integrate it, you know, was Jung's original idea. And, you know, my background is not psychology, so so please guide me afterwards in this. But but the, the idea of a, a Jungian shadow that's in all of us, that all of us must reconcile, um, can you talk a little bit about this, you know, old idea of Jungian shadow and how that compares against uh, psychopathy? Yeah, yeah. So I guess again, going back to sort of the, the key understanding of what is 
psychopathy? What is a serious personality disorder? So we all have personality. And, and I think that's sort of what Jung's getting at. We all have personality and we have different elements or aspects of personality. The, the difference is the person who's psychopathic, uh, what part of the, the uh, when we assess people, uh, we're looking at how they, how they behave, how they think, how they feel, how they act uh, over most of their life under most circumstances. So, so as soon as we find, you know, the example you gave, that is somebody who say a soldier who's, you know, rough and ready in the battle, but loving and caring at home. Well, that, that's a really good example of someone who's not psychopathic. So, so again, you can have some of these features. And I guess from, from you know, Jung, and Jung, Jung uh, of course, his work predated some of the modern understanding of psychopathy. Certainly in his time, there was early conceptualizations of, of psychopathy. You know, it existed at least from in, in medicine from the 1700s. So he would have had some understanding. But the difference is that um, those sort of episodic uh, experiences of darkness will be very different from someone for whom this is a, a continuous and ongoing part of their life. So even, even research, again, when I was younger, there, there we used to believe that there'd be what people call burnout. So you would somehow burn out these features, but uh, there's been now research, longitudinal research over time, finding that while the behaviors may soften, these, the underlying psychopathic features remain pretty impervious over your lifetime. So uh, Jung's really talking about the sense that we have elements of personality that under circumstances can be dark, but you, can, you have that coexisting with a, a typically normal, you know, character, a, character, a set of characteristics. With the psychopath, the difficulty is there isn't that underlying normal set of characteristics. And that's incidentally like what influenced that early thinking I talked about, which is a sense that people could become psychopathic because of these experiences. And, and that's really not what we're talking about now. Uh, we're talking about people who have these sort of uh, a constellation of characteristics that come together sufficient in a sufficient level to see that they have the features. Yeah, okay. Sorry, the final point on that is again, coming back to the dimension, that's very important because again, probably until 20 years ago, there, in, there was a belief that psychopathy was taxonometric. That is, there's a taxon, and at some point you, you're psychopathic, and at some point you're not. Now we know that that's probably not true. So it's very much considered a dimension. So uh, there's no magic you know, point at which you're psychopathic or not. And that I think really helps understand that we're not talking about just an element of the person's characteristics. It's really a constellation and they have to be sufficiently present. So, so the paramedic, for example, who can go to a, an emergency and not be, you know, they will be upset incidentally, but not overwhelmed to the point they can't work. The soldier who could, um, you know, do some, some particularly um, cruel act if, if, they, if they needed to. Uh, well, that wouldn't be explained by, by psychopathy. That would be explained typically by, by learning. And in the example you gave, like with PTSD, that's one of the underlying features is, is it's really a numbness that develops and, and a disconnect. And people struggle because they're, they've done things or experienced things which are uh, very different from, from their normal state of being. Yeah. Jim, I've... I've got to ask you this question um, because ever since you brought up the point about 
psychopathy and Nazism, it's it sort of plays into this piece. And I, I need to explore this with you. You've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about this. Do you believe that there were more psychopaths amongst the Nazis or did something else happen there? So again, people, a lot of people have given thought to this, including, you know, people who were, uh, and, 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 and who were um, studying events. Now, the, the Nazis, of course, we, we single out because of the particularly atrocious group. And, and, you know, one of the things, like there were doctors involved, like Nazi doctors. In fact, that's often, that's how some of the medical ethics codes were actually developed, believe it or not, post, post the war, because no one would have believed medical practitioners would, would do experiments with people in the way that were done. So there, there has been a lot of thought about, you know, were, were Nazis more psychopathic? I think, you know, my own view, and this is, you know, uh, probably shared by many, is that some people in the, in the movement were definitely psychopathic, uh, but a lot of people were driven by idealism that rather than just um, psychopathy. And so this is very difficult to understand, but if we think about not just Nazis, but slave owners, um, you know, even uh, I know I'm a Canadian originally, and there was a, a notorious Canadian psychologist called Philip Rushton, who studied intelligence across races. And uh, his work is innately racist when you when you read it. But um, there's a big debate at the moment, you know, should his um, recognitions be removed because uh, he was, you know, he's long, long dead and he was working many years ago. Um, so what you find is that um, because people believed, particularly Nazis, that there were a race of people who were superior to others and others, particularly Jews and others, people who are homosexual, sometimes people who were Catholic, some, some other groups of people, they were not really fully human. And it's the same with, you know, someone who owns slaves or how indigenous people were treated, uh, you know, in Australia and other, other countries that have been colonized. I think what, what we know, and again, through psychology, is it's not just the innate personality features, but it's believing that they're really not people. So if you think about how we treat animals, you know, we, we treat animals in ways that we wouldn't treat people. And that's very sad analogy, but that's often what, what we see. So a lot of the, the deeds, the atrocities that have been done to people have been born not just out of uh, sort of evil psychopathic predisposition, but by this you know, misguided belief, sometimes held with very strong conviction that people are, that some people are not really people. You know, that, that's a sad thing to imagine, but certainly like, for example, I have a law degree from the United States. I did my legal training there and spent a lot of time, you know, learning about the history of the US around slavery and so forth and laws and uh, some of the laws uh, that evolved. And really they did not believe that, that uh, the Africans were people the way that we are. They thought they were a different species. So, so again, that helps explain to some extent, you don't, you can do bad things to people and groups of people like genocide without necessarily being a psychopath. You just have to believe these things to, to an extent where you will be, you'll be prepared to take action against people. Now, again, the people in the front lines, for example, who are, you know, you know, annihilating people, just like we talked about earlier, they have to overcome those feelings and emotions. And there's, there's a fair amount of uh, writing looking at both Holocaust survivors and also people who were like um, the oppressors. And you find very much uh, in some of them a degree of humanity and uh, 
how they how they overcame that to do that work you know and then also being fear of themselves being being uh killed or their families and that so it's a terrible terrible fact of life is that humans can be very very dark but not all the darkness can be explained you know by something like psychopathy yeah um i, I would probably completely agree with that viewpoint in the sense of the ideology playing um, a significant role um i hope you you don't mind that the um the digression i just couldn't no, have yeah, someone no. like you and not ask that question yeah, no, it's important to think about it because, and again, that's, you know, that's, like I said, that spawned in, the, in that diagnostic and statistical manual. The, the first one was, in fact, published in 1932. And uh, then, uh, and, they, and, the, and then the, the next, the DSM uh, was, they talked about this antisocial reaction, uh, really, to, that's to sort of the, the society. And that was really, influenced by the war. So by 1952, there was a sense that um, people were, they could, they could do terrible things. Uh, and it would be this antisocial reaction to the, to the environment that they're in, uh, you know, and I, and I think the difference is that people, uh, you know, involved, and now most of the people say veterans from World War II are mostly gone. But for example, growing up, our next door neighbor, they were, um, they were from uh, Austria and Germany. And their grandfather lived with them, who was a, who was in fact a Nazi soldier, and we had a great uncle living with us, who was a Canadian uh, Army uh, veteran. And initially, they they hated each other, but they became friends, and and they were both you know innately human, and uh, they would have done terrible things, you know, in the name of of the war, but at at base they were both people who had families and uh, you know normal existence. So that's the difference. Where the psychopath. You know, so the guy I mentioned who's sort of the serial killer killed many people. So I haven't seen him for a few years, but I, I, I would see him on and off. And and he just could never, he never, you know, some of these events occurred in the 70s. He never developed remorse. He never thought maybe intellectually I should have done something differently because I didn't want to be in prison forever. But it wasn't driven by I shouldn't have done that. And this person, in fact, one of the victims was a child that he killed. So you know, so the fact is, that's the difference is that it's not like the psychopath suddenly becomes remorseful and understanding of what the problem is with their behavior. Uh, whereas most people who do bad things, they do. And like you said, even if you're driven by ideology, sometimes over time, you just realize it, it was nonsense. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to hear some of those conversations uh, between the, uh, the the former soldiers. I bet that would have been just oh, so yeah. interesting. Pardon me? No, I was just say, yeah, as a child, it was fascinating because, of course, I had such a, a base, like, of course, I grew up largely in the, in the 1960s and, uh, you know, I was very much in the in the post-war baby boom generation and uh, it was good guys and bad guys, you know, and that first time I probably started to realize that it wasn't such a clear demarcation, you know, that, that uh, uh, the individuals on the ground uh, were there like everybody else in society minions to to work what a lot of people are are doing and i guess the world was reeling after the second world war to make sense of everything as you say and you know that's where the stanford prison experiments and the milgram experiments and to any of our listeners who are not familiar with those um wikipedia that straight after this conversation because they're both just incredible um examples of of human behavior um uh, jim I would love to gather your thoughts on the the way in which we test for psychopathy. Um, 
I did the psychopathy checklist, the revised version before our conversation, just out of my own uh, curiosity. So that one's out there, the PCL hyphen R. Could you talk about how we test for the psychopaths and how accurate the tests are? Yeah. So there are, I mean, there are a range of different, different ways to assess, including so-called tests. And you, you mentioned one of them. The, the, the reality is that it's very difficult to assess because you have to be able to look at, like I said, the historical picture. Uh, so not what somebody's like now. Uh, so for example, somebody could have a, like you talked about PTSD, you could have somebody who's acutely unwell, say with schizophrenia, who may have some features of psychopathy. So we have to take this longitudinal historical perspective. So it's looking at their features over time under different circumstances. And then, like I said, a range of different areas, the how they interact with, with one another, how they express or experience emotion, and then look at uh, their general behavior. So um, tests like the psychopathy checklist is probably the most widely used, and it's probably the one that's got the most validity. The limitation in the literature is that it has mostly been developed and used with people who are criminals. And so there's a lot of debate about to what extent do you include criminal behavior when you're measuring psychopathy, because it may, the, may be the manifestation of the behavior rather than a necessary element of it. So in fact, I've done some research very recently trying to look at that and, and we find no clear conclusion. That is, there's uh, you can understand psychopathy by both including the bad behavior and excluding it. Uh, so the, the, I would sort of caution people against, you know, running out and trying to do these tests because like, for example, I do training, I train people to use the psychopathy checklist and there's criteria. People have to be mental health professionals. They have to have postgraduate expertise and it's a three-day training program. You know, it's an intense program, which includes videos and uh, scoring exercises and case studies. And so, you know, I have seen, even I've even been in a case where a judge has done it. You know, the judge sort of ran through and said, well, I don't see, I don't agree because I've looked at this. So people think it's sort of a checklist where you can tick it off. So there are a number of, you know, pencil and paper measures and online measures, but generally speaking, you need someone who's, a, a, you know, a, a typically a psychiatrist or psychologist with not just, you know, with general experience, but expertise in the area. Because one of the things I've learned is it can be very, very stigmatizing and detrimental to, to call someone a psychopath. In fact, probably there's, you could almost think of nothing worse, really. So we need to be very, very careful with that. So, so the diagnosis takes, you know, a lot of consideration. And uh, it's not just sitting down and talking to the person or filling out a form. It's getting collateral information, often talking to people who know the person, uh, interviewing them, and then doing, you know, these different assessments that we've talked about. How accurate is the assessment if done correctly? Again, it's hard to know how accurate because there is no real gold standard. Like it's not like, say, something like um, Alzheimer's, where when you find when the person finally dies, you can look at their brain and say, "Aha, they had this." So there's no um, there's no gold standard like that. What we we look at the reliability, so the extent to which experts would agree. And again, if you use these validated measures, the reliability tends to be very very good. Uh, but again, it depends on the training and experience of people. So I think they're, you know, my own experience is they're probably best at ruling people out uh, because you can very easily eliminate features. Uh, and, and just to give an example, so on the psychopathy checklist, without going into detail, it's a dimension from zero to 40. And uh, 
you know, the, the typical cutoff for psychopaths would be something like 30 out of 40. The, tip, the, the average person in the population will be six. So scores are very, very low, again, um, uh, because we, we, for each of these areas, we look at, again, a dimension. So for example, something like conning and manipulation, we look at that on a dimension. So it's not just, do you do it? It's, you know, to what extent does your personality reflect that? So you may have somebody who's a very good salesperson, you know, who can talk people into buying something. You might think, well, that guy's psychopathic, but that's just one element of one item, you know, out of many. So, yeah. So in terms of accuracy, it's a hard question. I think it's, it's probably much better at ruling people out than once you actually identify that people have these features, then it's doing that more clinical examination that I talk about to, to get a better understanding of what are the features, where do they come from, are they changeable? You know, that's one of the things we try to look at. Can we remediate some of these characteristics? Yeah, okay. Um, what advice or insight or guidance could you offer to anyone listening who believes that they may be in a relationship or related to someone that is a psychopath? Yeah. So again, I'm, I'm always a bit cautious just because Again, you will see, and you, you mentioned it yourself earlier, that you, know, you might see a television show or read an article and you might think my partner or my boss or somebody has these features. So the first thing I think, just, just be cautious. But, but if you do find yourself in, in a relationship with someone, and I, by, and I don't care if it's an intimate relationship, employment relationship, then obviously the, the problem is usually you don't find out until you're pretty enmeshed in that relationship. And that's, that's part of the problem is, uh, unless the person's a totally unsuccessful sort of psychopath, then you're going to get into the relationship quite far before you realize that. And then it may be quite difficult to extricate yourself from it. So, so you know, I think to the extent possible, seek, seek assistance, seek help. Uh, so, for example, you mentioned the psychopathy checklist. The person who, who developed that is a, is a person called Robert Hare, who's a now retired um, psychologist, but, but he still would get many, many people contacting him, asking for help, you know, and, and that's the problem. So seek, you know, seek help if you think you're in such a relationship. Uh, in Australia, that would be from groups, even like Relationships Australia, if it's uh, an intimate relationship, and it could be through uh, another psychologist or, or even starting with your GP to, to get a referral. So that, that's probably useful because uh, you'll need some assistance in understanding how to navigate the, those relationships. Is it reasonable to expect a psychopath to be able to change and improve? Again, that, that's a very tough question. You know, you think, you think we'd know these things by now. I, on one hand, there's no, there's no demonstrated study you could look to to say that any, anything we've tried can take someone who's a psychopath and make them a non-psychopath. The, the work we do in fact, again, in my own work early in my life, uh, so this is um, in, the, in about 1984, I, I worked in a program in a maximum security prison trying to reduce the effect of psychopathy. And, and uh, we found out it was a resounding failure, you know, and, and in fact, I published that work, but people have continued. And now we know that we can, for example, have someone who's a, an offender who's psychopathic and we can, to some extent, reduce the likelihood of offending. We can't cure them, but we can change some of the behavior, but not in a way that 
would would be that I'd be too optimistic about. So that that's the difficulty. If someone's truly psychopathic, if they've engaged in bad behavior, then it's going to be very difficult to have a degree of comfort that they're able to change that behavior. There's all sorts of legal spin-offs to that question as well in terms of what do you do with someone once they've been in prison um and they were diagnosed as a psychopath um do you have any thoughts on on that that you're prepared to share yeah as a clinician again i think you should never deal with anybody based on the diagnosis so if someone if someone's in prison and they're seen to be a psychopath that that's helpful to understand a range of things about them but it's not helpful to know whether they'll reoffend or or what they'll do but there are laws, you know, again, across the Australian states where we do have post-sentence laws now that allow for the ongoing supervision and sometimes detention of people who continue to be a serious endangerment uh, uh, to the environment or to people. And so there are legal processes for that. And again, having I do a lot of that work myself, and probably the majority of people who have such orders are not psychopathic, but some of them would be. So again, uh, some people are psychopathic they'll go on to offend, some others won't. And it could be just like uh, somebody who realizes, I don't want to do this behavior because of the adverse impact it's having on me. So there's not this, um, you know, there's a relationship between psychopathy and offending and reoffending, but it's not a 100% certainty. So the fact is we have to look at other features. And, and so for me, as you know, as a psychologist, it's important that we don't use a diagnosis as a way for making that decision. It has to be what the person's actually done and the likelihood they might do it again. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm conscious of the time. There's two last questions I have to ask you, if that's okay. Have you seen American Psycho, the movie? I have, yeah. Um, What's your take with all of your insight in the criminal mind behind what happens with Christian Bale? Towards the end, the viewers left wondering, you know, there's that there's that scene with him sitting at the bar and he wasn't caught. There's no, you know, to use his words, no catharsis, no emotional release. He just keeps going like, did he really kill all those people? And do you think that's a fair representation of the extreme version of a psychopath? No, I mean, I think early on, it's probably more realistic. And same with shows like Dexter. I don't know if you've ever seen Dexter. You know, Dexter's probably early on the best characterization of, of someone who's psychopathic. Um, how he sort of understands he's different and wrestles with it and so forth. It becomes fanciful like all these shows like American Psycho. So in fact, somebody like American Psycho, he's much more likely to have been more more psychotic, out of touch with reality. Uh, you know, again, and I, I do think it was, um, you know, entertaining as, as uh, entertainment, but pretty fanciful. Uh, the, and that would same, be the same with things like Silence of the Lambs, uh, where it's just it's just extreme, and I think that's what happens in the popular culture is they have to depict things in an extreme way to make it make it more interesting for people. Uh, the again, that's why for me things like the early seasons of Dexter and the books that that it was based on are probably a bit of a better characterization of of psychopathy. That was going to be my second question. I've got a list of um, of psychopath related movies, and I wanted to ask if you thought some of them represented a better or worse. The other ones I had was you, um, the story about a psychopathic stalker um, killing Eve, uh, Hannibal, of course. Um, do any of those strike you as more realistic? If any of the viewers want to, I guess, take that darker plunge into the mind of of someone in that state, I think again, each of them depict to some extent, you know, these features. Uh, like Killing Eve's a good example where she's able to do 
absolutely terrible things and she has no emotional reaction you know she'll she can do do you know kill someone and then be perfectly fine uh, and she also has some attachment to uh, to the the woman Eve and then same with Hannibal you know he's got this attachment uh, but that that's one thing that's probably not as true is that they're less likely to have that attachment uh, to people and the interesting so some of the work I do some research in stalking for example in fact we've written a a chapter in a book recently, the research actually shows that psychopaths are in fact less likely to be stalkers just because they don't get that emotional uh, connectedness in a relationship where, where the psychopath will be a problem for a, a former um, partner will be in the sense of uh, that they own them, that they, they want an explanation and they'll be, because they're typically very self-focused uh, and they can become very angry. But it won't be this long-term, uh, you know, attachment. The most people who are stalking have a, a real attachment problems, where they they're longing for this relationship, uh, and uh, so it, it's almost the opposite of what we see in psychopathy. Uh, but so again, so probably in the pop culture, m many of these sort of depictions have some elements that are really there, uh, and that is again those features I I started by talking about. So they typically show the the uh, interpersonal interaction and how there's a degree of manipulation, conning, lying. And then they have typically a lack of affect or remorse. Uh, they don't feel um, empathy with people. And then they can engage in behaviors, both lifestyle, like we talked about during this discussion, risk-taking, sensation-seeking, thrill-taking, uh, and then some of them, but not all of them will engage in, in offending behavior. Jim, I wanna be conscious of our time. Um... I'm extremely grateful. Thank you for sharing your expertise and your thoughts. Thanks very much. Uh, I hope it's of some interest to the viewers in this complex area. Thanks very much. Okay, well, that's it for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Professor James Ogloff. You can find us at talklink.com.au. Keep well and catch you next time.